Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll talk with Dan Schaefer, author of the new book, Thunder on the River, The Civil War in Northeast Florida. Blacks played a a very significant role in, in the war itself. We'll remember the violent demise of Florida's notorious Ashley Gang in 1924. As we got close, you could see that these bodies were laid out on the sidewalk. And explore more than 100 years of auto racing in Daytona. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Although not much fighting was done on Florida soil during the American Civil War, the state was the primary supplier of beef to the Confederate Army and played an important role in other ways. Dan Schaefer is author of the new book, Thunder on the River, The Civil War in Northeast Florida, published by the University Press of Florida. Well, it wasn't uh, especially active in terms of military engagements other than the Battle of Alusty. The military engagements were few in number but certainly the supply of beef was vital to the Confederacy. And uh, early in the war, there was a great deal of smuggling in and out of the rivers and the ports that was closed off. And, of course, it represented a fine supply of cotton and other commodities if if that blockade had had not gone into effect so soon and so effectively. Uh, And had the Union forces persevered in let's say the second attempt to take the city of Jacksonville if they had held it and had brought the state back into the Union, it would have had a major impact, it seems to me, on the conduct of the war. Uh, But in terms of military activity, the engagements were few in in, in number in comparison with the states further to the north. Following the election of Abe Lincoln as President of the United States in 1860, Florida became the third state to secede from the Union on January 10, 1861, helping to form the Confederate States of America and begin the Civil War. Slavery did not exist in the Industrial North, but was seen as essential to the agriculture-based economy in the Southern states. The U.S. federal government did not want slavery following the U.S. expansion into the West. Supporters of the Confederate point of view argue that the primary issue behind secession was states' rights versus federal rights, but Dan Schaefer has a different view. Well, (laughs) it is not going to be a very popular chapter in in this area. There's a strong attachment to the Confederacy still, but in the first chapter of Thunder on the River, I, I think I argue very successfully that it was 
the desire to maintain slavery, to be sure that slavery remained viable in the Western territories, and the fear that people had that slavery would eventually be eliminated by a Northern, if the North had control of the government. And of course, Lincoln's election they read as as uh, step one in, in doing that. Uh, so it seems to me that's a major reason for secession. It seems to me that if you look very carefully at the newspapers in the region, I use the Jacksonville newspapers as the prime source of information. You look at conventions that were held, the letters to the editor, the editorial opinions, it seems to me very clear that the major reason for secession is, is to maintain slavery. In his new book, Thunder on the River, The Civil War in Northeast Florida, Dan Schaefer describes how Jacksonville was occupied four different times by Union forces, making it the most contested region in Florida. Four times Union forces occupied Jacksonville stayed the fourth time. The first three times they came in uh, and occupied briefly uh, and, then, and then withdrew. <clears throat> the first occupation came relatively early in the war, uh, the, the dates for that uh, Beginning in in early 1862, February of 1862, the Union blockade had moved south along the coast, and by February of 1862, the Union fleet came in and took Fernandina, then St. Augustine, then Key West, and held those those Florida ports throughout throughout the war. Shortly after taking those ports, those cities. Uh, they came, went up the St. Johns River on a temporary reconnaissance in force, as it was called. Uh, combination naval vessels and, and troops as well. They expected to only spend a few days going above Palatka, maybe 80 miles above Palatka or so, and then move on out, disassembling all the Confederate forti fortifications they found and taking the weaponry with them. But once they, they came into Jacksonville, the Confederate supporters had left the town, and the only people left were were Union supporters, and very strong Unionists as well. And in many cases, they knew one another. The Union officers had gone to college with or had lived in towns in the north with. They knew each other, and Union officers, naval as well as <clears throat> army, were so impressed by the depth of Union support that they decided to stay. General. Uh, Thomas Sherman came down, Department of the South Commander came down, investigated, and they decided this would be a key point to uh, use Jacksonville's loyal supporters of the Union as sort of a lightning rod to strike the rest of the state, calling for conventions to bring people into St. Augustine and, and into Jacksonville, and then come back into the Union. They held it for, I, I guess the Union forces stayed for not quite a month three weeks or a little more than three weeks. Confederate troops came in, of course, several thousand, three thousand troops were west of the city uh, in camp, but that position on the river was a powerful one with Union gunboats to be able to fire, fire across the city and control it. But a new commander of the South came in, General David Hunter, in this instance, and he decided lines were overextended and pulled out of Jacksonville. Uh, at the end of end of March in 1862. Uh, when they pulled out, however, the Union Navy stayed at Mayport throughout the war and had it as a base to block off the St. John's River, also communicate with the Union vessels in the blockade off, 
off the coast, stop any illegal commerce and disrupt economic activity along the river for Confederates, every day the gunboats would go up the river, patrol up beyond Palatka, and then come back down, up and down. And what was discovered soon after that is that not only Unionist white who were living in the area, but slaves in the area found the river as a source of freedom. So the river became really, freedom was as close as the St. John's River. Gunboats would sometimes go back to Mayport carrying, on one occasion, 43 escaped slaves were aboard the vessel, 24 another time, 23 another time, one or two another time. And it soon became apparent to the Confederate command that you had to close off that river if you were going to persevere in the war. And that's exactly what Joseph Finnegan, the commander in Florida, did secretly brought weapons from Tallahassee area, installed them six miles up the river at St. John's Bluff, and then closed off the river. And in came the Union and knocked out that. The Confederates realized they couldn't hold that point, so they abandoned it dark uh, of the evening in October of 1862, and that let the Union back up the river, stayed up in Jacksonville for five days on this occasion, and left carrying with them several hundred escaped slaves so they couldn't control that river. And it meant a great deal to the Union effort, and it hurt the Confederates badly to lose all those enslaved laborers. Uh, the third occupation of Jacksonville was in 1863, again in, in early February of 1863, and this time was really the, the exciting occupation it included the occupation force was black soldiers, the first really major effort of former slaves and free blacks, many of whom were from Jacksonville and from Northeast Florida, had joined the first Union Regiment, the first South Carolina Volunteers under Thomas Wentworth Higginson. And in they came and occupied the town and, and held it for about a month on this occasion. And once again, it was decided that Union uh, troops were overdrawn, overextended. The Union was trying to take Charleston at the time and thought they'd pull back and use all the forces they could, and so they abandoned the city for a third time. Um, the fourth occupation <coughs> was in 1864, and that was uh, again in early 1864, in February, I think, of, of 1864, and on this occasion they stayed until the end of the war. Union forces came in seeking to close off that supply route of, of cattle that were getting to the Confederate arms, go up the St. John's River and then disrupt all of that activity, knock out railroad uh, line that was being built across the Suwannee River. Um, but anyhow, that, that was the fourth occasion, that, the prelude to the Battle of Alusty, the tragedy for the Union forces. And then the Union came back after that defeat and just settled in and, and controlled until the end of the war. Almost driven out by a submarine, or torpedo, I should say, torpedo activity, uh, but they stayed until the end of the war. So four different occupations, only one permanent. When Florida became a state in 1845, nearly half of the population of 140,000 was African American. In Thunder on the River, author Dan Schaefer sheds new light on the fact that African Americans in Florida were active participants in the Civil War. Blacks played a, a very significant role in, in the war itself. I mean, when you look at those Union reports, when the 
Navy naval commanders came into Mayport or came into Fernandina. Continually, it was a former river pilot that escapes and, and gets to the Union, or enslaved men and women who come to Fernandina uh, and then get to the gunboats and, and tell the commanders what is going on. Uh, that sort of intelligence was vital. And then once they were able to get to the cities, thousands, uh, there, there were there were somewhere in the neighborhood there were over one thousand former slaves that joined the three regiments of U.S. Colored Infantry from this area, first South Carolina, second South Carolina, third, and they became regular troops as the thirty-third regiment of U.S. Colored Infantry, the thirty-fourth and the twenty-first regiment. Over a thousand Northeast Florida enslaved men joined those three regiments, so they played a very powerful role in the war, and of course they're fighting to liberate their own families and others still held in slavery. Dan Schaefer's new book, Thunder on the River, The Civil War in Florida, is published by the University Press of Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to register for our upcoming annual meeting in May at the Casa Monica Hotel in St. Augustine. You can find out about other upcoming events at our Library of Florida History in Cocoa, including this month's Florida History Film Festival. You can become a member of the Florida Historical Society and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. In the first part of the 20th century, Florida's notorious Ashley Gang was involved in a variety of violent crimes, from bank robbery to murder to running liquor from the Bahamas to southeast Florida. As Janie Gould reports, the gang met their own violent end in 1924. During the Prohibition era, early in the last century, a murderous band of outlaws known as the Ashley Gang robbed banks from Miami to Stewart and Fort Pierce. The legendary desperados were moonshiners, rum runners, carjackers, and they even tried to rob a train one time. Their jail escapes and shootouts with lawmen finally came to an end in 1924 on the Sebastian River Bridge. John Ashley and three of his partners were shot to death after being ambushed by the St. Lucie County Sheriff and his deputies. Ed Register of Fort Pierce was only seven when the Ashley gang met its demise, but he'd been hearing about their crime wave for months. 
I heard a lot of things at the dinner table. That was our main way of getting information. News of the Ashley gang's fate in Sebastian filtered back to Fort Pierce, and Register's neighborhood was abuzz with talk the next morning. The bodies of the four outlaws were being moved to a mortuary in Fort Pierce, but those bodies were still out on the sidewalk when folks started gathering on 2nd Street to take a look. Register's father decided to go, too. He says to me, come on, Eddie, if you want to, you can go with me. So How do you feel about that? Well, I thought it was a pretty exciting deal, but later I, I didn't feel exactly that way. We got on down there, and uh, most of the people were just kind of standing over around Pioneer Drug, which was across the street, and they were just observing. We walked on down to the corner of Avenue A and North 2nd Street. The northwest corner is where... Fee Mortuary and Fee Hardware were located. As we got close, you could see that these bodies were laid out on the sidewalk. Were they covered or uncovered? They were uncovered. I don't know. My dad says, come on, son, we're going to go across the street where most people were staying over on the south side of Avenue A. They were keeping their distance. Yeah, they didn't didn't want too much to do with it. Was the area not roped off at all? Not at all. I'd never seen a person that was dead before, and These people had been dead for several hours, so that was quite a difference in the way they looked. How did that make you feel as a young kid? Really scared me very much. For years, I wished I hadn't seen that, but I did. When we got over there, Dad says, we're not going to stay here long, because I think he was kind of getting anxious to move on. And the authorities were telling people to keep moving. They didn't want to crowd around them. John Ashley, I guess, was distinctive looking because he had a patch over one eye. Don't remember that at all. I remember the four images, and I remember this one in overalls. We didn't do much talking about it, and I know it was kind of upsetting to me. That lasted a long time for you, didn't it? Yes. You know, as a boy, I guess in times we may have some bad dreams about things. I had a lot of recurring thoughts about it. Well, there was a lot of publicity, you know, over a period of time. There were all kinds of stories. You didn't see a news photographer there, did you? No, not at the fee mortuary, no. Not outside it or anywhere? No, nobody of that nature. After it was over and the days that immediately followed, all I wanted to do was forget about it and just wish I hadn't been there. To learn more about the Ashley Gang, read Ada Coates-Williams' book, called Florida's Ashley Gang. Also, you can go to IndianRiverMagazine.com to read Warren Sahn's story titled The Ashley Gang, What Really Happened? And by the way, Ed Register, who's known to as many friends as the historic Register, (laughs) is is going to be turning 92 soon. And by the time you hear this, he will have had his birthday. Happy birthday, Ed. Thank you, Janie. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. Hans Zimmer composed this theme for the 1990 racing film Days of Thunder, shot on location in Daytona. 
The film will be shown on Saturday, April 24th at 2 o'clock at the Library of Florida History in Coco as part of the Spring Florida History Film Festival. It will be introduced by Harold Cardwell, author of Daytona Beach, 100 Years of Racing. Daytona Beach has long been associated with motorized activities from Bike Week to NASCAR, but racing on the wide, hard-packed beaches has been going on far longer than most people realize. Bill Dudley talks to the author of a new book on how racing history was made on Florida sands over a century ago. Now in his 87th year, Ormond Beach resident Dick Panette has long been fascinated by the history of this part of Florida. I came here in 1924, and I was two months old then. My grandparents had retired here. Panette later started a career as a commercial artist, went to Hollywood to draw animation storyboards, and produced a series of children's books. He's the author of Beach Racers, Daytona Before NASCAR, a history of the very first auto racing beginning in 1903 on the beaches of Ormond and Daytona. Florida in 1903 was still a thinly settled frontier in many ways. Most of the population lived in the northern half of the peninsula, and Jacksonville was the largest city. Outside towns, there was no such thing as a paved road, and driving was at best an adventure, according to area historian Harold Cardwell. And you'd be sure to have to have a pry pole and a shovel, because if you got stuck, you had to either pry it out and put something under your wheels or shovel around it. Most of Daytona's 2,000 residents lived on the mainland west of the intercoastal Halifax River, and most grew oranges. Even though by 1903 the rustic summer cottages on the dunes had begun turning into Victorian mansions, a trip to the beach took some doing. If you wanted to go to the beach, you had to cross the Halifax, and then you were confronted with what was little more than a jungle. Beach racing began when a group of wealthy motor enthusiasts decided the smooth, wide sands of Daytona and the adjacent Ormond beaches could be a winter alternative to inland roads up north. It really started out from noticing that bicycles were not making any tracks on the sands at Ormond Beach. Then they thought, well, that'd be good for those horseless carriages to come here and try for ground speed records. From the beginning, the hard-packed sand gave the racers a boost. Over the next few years, they would set a series of world records, beginning on Ormond Beach in 1903 as Oscar Hedstrom rode his motorcycle to a speed of just under 60 miles an hour. Early race cars were toys of the wealthy. There were cars made by Packard, Mercedes, Stanley, Napier, and Curtis that often had names like Bullet, Spider, Gray Wolf, and Flying Dutchman. Cars came in all shapes and sizes, some streamlined, some looking like crude assemblages of parts. You know, there was a skeleton of a machine. <laughs> That's probably the best way to describe it. The wheels didn't have the rims like we have today, and looked like a riding on a tank and a piece of machinery. Spectators could tell the cars by their sounds. Gas-powered or internal combustion engine cars made a loud roar. Steam-powered cars, which proved early on to be some of the fastest, puffed like a locomotive. Electric cars made no noise at all. The drivers sat high in the air. There were few windshields and no seat belts. Your center of gravity was high the drivers sat high, windshields were almost non-existent because nobody had ever 
experienced that kind of speed on the ground before, so they had no idea what it was like to have the wind blasting at you. So about the only thing they did was wear goggles. They just uh, put together the best way they could and understanding that they'd be driving fast and hope they held together. There were few rules. Racers did one or more miles as time trials up and down the beach, preferably at low tide. When the tide came in, the beach course for racing was kind of narrow. And if you got into the surf, you could get stuck. Spectators watched from the dunes or from the decks of homes or hotels. The Ormond Hotel was the place, you know, then. In Flagler, I built the Ormond Garage, which they could park their cars in, and the mechanics and so forth could work on the cars. Like, it was reported that Ford, when he came down, that he slept in the Ormond Garage by his car, and he had his own tools. People would go in and stand around in the hotel looking to see the, the millionaires or the car owners, who they were, to take a look at them, and then they'd go down to the beach and stand in the sand dunes and watch them run. Dogs wandering the beach could be shot on sight to protect the drivers of cars racing at speeds up to 120 miles an hour. People were another problem. Sometimes people would come down to the beach who were not interested in racing. <laughs> And on several occasions, there would be a race going on, and a stroller would stroll right into the course of the racing car. Fortunately, there never was a fatality. By 1906, several cars had achieved speeds over 100 miles per hour. As the decade ended, Barney Oldfield drove a Benz racer to the new record of 131 miles per hour. A year later, another Benz reached 141 miles per hour on the beach. But now, auto racing was spreading to other parts of the country. 1911 saw construction of the Speedway in Indianapolis, built by Carl Fisher, who was also one of South Florida's pioneering developers. The Speedway was one of the first closed circular tracks. There were stands, and spectators would have to pay admission. But meanwhile, speed records were still being set on the beach at Daytona. In 1931, Sir Malcolm Campbell drove his Bluebird to a speed of 246 miles per hour, as witnessed by a young Dick Panette. Sir Malcolm Campbell was a speck way off on the horizon down the beach, and suddenly, whoosh, and he was a speck on the horizon north. Stock car races began here in 1936. Drivers raced on a course that included two miles of beach combined with paved roads like A1A. NASCAR was formed in 1948, and the last beach racers ran in 1958. The following year, the first Daytona 500 took place at the newly constructed Daytona International Speedway. Beach Racers, Daytona Before NASCAR, is published by University Press. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Bill Dudley. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can find us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. 
You can also join us on Facebook by becoming a fan of the Florida Historical Society and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.